0: Job chapter 24. As we saw last week in chapters 23 and 24, Job is responding to Eliphaz's third and final speech. And in his response, Job basically ignores his friends. That is, he does not address them directly. He disregards the accusations that have been made against him. He rejects the call to repentance even though what Eliphaz promises is Job's greatest desire, that is peace with God. Job will not fake repentance. He will not pretend to repent in order to be returned to God, to have peace with God. He knows better than his friends do that he cannot have peace with God if he seeks God for the benefits rather than seeking God for himself. We saw last week that uh, chapter 23 is a chapter of confidence. We have the strongest statements thus far by Job about his innocence and about his assurance that if, in fact, he were put on trial before God, he would be found innocent. And last week we saw quickly four points. Where is God in the midst of all of this? Secondly, Job said, I want to make my case. Thirdly. What is God doing? And lastly, God is to be feared. So we find a chapter of great confidence. Now we come to chapter 24. And if there's one word that we could use to title this chapter, it would be complaint. Job grieves at the injustice in the world. And he gives a detailed complaint against God about the inequities that are suffered by innocent people. You'll notice in the first verse, Job complains that God seems to be doing nothing about them. Then in verses 2 through 17, Job lists a variety of wrongdoings, things which are against God's law. And then we find in verses 18 through 25, really a passage that presents problems, because Job, having said earlier, why isn't God doing anything about it? Now at the end says, God, in fact, will do something. Let's read the chapter and then uh, see if we can understand it. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but they still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no one will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. Yet they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion of the land is cursed so that no one goes to the vineyards. As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered, but they are broken like a tree. They prey on the barren and childless woman and go to the widow and to the widow show no kindness. But God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they are exalted and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off heads of grain. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? You may have noticed that there is a dramatic shift here. That in the first 18 or 17 verses of this chapter, Job is basically saying to God, why aren't you doing something about wickedness? And then in the last part of the chapter, God is doing something about it, as Job can see. This these last passage, verses 18 through 25, present a problem for a lot of commentators because they seem to say the opposite of what the rest of the chapter does. It doesn't fit in with Job's speech. Some commentators have solved this problem by saying, well, this passage is actually not Job speaking, the, the chapter divisions are wrong and, and whoever put it together made a mistake. But this is actually coming from Bildad or Zophar. When it comes to this chapter, uh, particularly on the heels of chapter 23, in which we have such great confidence on the part of Job. Some people have said, well, this, this can't be Job speaking. This this cannot possibly be him. Uh, Even those who are conservative, if you wish, in their scholarship have argued that that this this presents real problems and that and maybe this isn't Job speaking. One author has, in fact, reconstructed chapters 24 through 27 uh, so that you have a third cycle. Because if you look at chapter 25, which the Lord willing, we'll be looking at next week, it only has six verses. And and they have suggested that, no, no, actually build that begins in verse number 18, and this is not Job. I would suggest to you that what we find in Job is someone who is confused. One moment he speaks with confidence, the next he is complaining against God for the lack of justice in the world. But I think we have a serious problem that affects our ability to understand this particular chapter. And I don't claim to understand it fully, but I don't think it's necessary to see this as a mistake that somehow verses 18 through 25 belong to another voice. Last week, I talked about how we are to read Job's words, how we are to view him and to interpret what he has to say. And I pointed to at least two options when it comes to reading Job's speeches. The first option is that we see Job as a man of arrogance, a man who is alienated from God, and yet he is convinced of his own innocence, and he's willing to take God on himself. At a different point, he says, I want to be put on trial in heaven itself, and if I am, I will be found innocent. And we read that and we think, that, that man sounds quite arrogant. The second option is to see Job as a man of faith. As I argued last week, I think the first option is usually what we go for. Uh, We don't want to see Job as a man of faith. And there are different reasons for this. First of all, and we talked about this last week, in this generation, in this age, we view faith as a commodity, as a product, not a process. We are much more comfortable talking about somebody having faith Rather than we are talking about someone believing that is you have the product rather than going through the process of believing pilgrimage is not a word that we like to use. And, and think about it. I mean, if I say to you the word pilgrimage, oftentimes it is something that we associate with religions that we consider to be false religions, that they make pilgrimage to certain places, the idea of us being on pilgrimage seems so foreign to us. We don't want to go through the process. We just want to have faith. And so it's easy for us to say, well, the problem with Job at this point is he doesn't have faith. I think it is also easy for us to make such a judgment about Job because we see things in terms of black and white. Either you have faith or you're in unbelief. Either you believe or you do not believe. And I think we should acknowledge that even when we are believing, unbelief is there with us. We cannot have perfect faith. So when we see Job confident one minute and complaining the next, we should not conclude that, well, obviously he does not have faith, because otherwise he wouldn't be vacillating so wildly. We should, in fact, allow for the contradictions that come into our faith. That as Christians in process... We can, in fact, be believing one minute and questioning the next or even complaining against God in the next. I would suggest that our problems with chapter 24 come about because of a third defect in our view of faith. And that is that we view faith more as stoic than as Christian. That is uh, based on the Greek philosophy of stoicism we think that we should bear the difficulties of life, the discomforts of life, anything that God throws at us, we should bear it without any great emotion and we should bear it without complaining. We should not ask questions. We should not complain. We should not ask God, why is this going on? We should grin and bear it. And I do think that many Christians view faith in that light. That faith for them Is going through life grinning and bearing it. So that some think that faith means accepting blindly anything that happens in this world. That many people view Christians as what we would call yes men to God. That whatever God says, we say yes. That we are not to think, we are not to question, we are not to say, why is this happening? We are simply to say, yes. Many people feel that to question God about what is going on is sinful. That it is rebellious. It can be, but it is not necessarily. Otherwise, what are we to make of? And let me just give you two examples. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When faced with what was God's plan, That is his death by resurrection. And Jesus knew this from the beginning. He asked, he asked God, the father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he continued, yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus did this three times. Unfortunately, I think we rushed to the the last part that is. Not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. And we forget the fact that Jesus, God the Son, God in human flesh, asked, Is there another way? He did submit, but he did ask. And I think we focus on the submitting, and that is important, but we ignore the asking. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that he pleaded with the Lord three times to take away what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And, and we don't know what this was. We assume that it was some, some type of physical uh, infirmity uh, that uh, was debilitating to Paul and his ministry. And he wanted God to heal him. Paul was an apostle. He had healed people. He knew that God could heal him. And he pleaded three times. Was this rebellion? If you ask one time and God does not answer, or if he says no, and you ask again and he doesn't answer, he says no. You ask a third time, is that rebellion? I would argue that we should see Job as a man of faith. Through the confidence of, and the complaining as well. God sees sees him as a man of faith, and that will become abundantly clear when we get to the last chapters of this book, where God will speak against Job's friends, but he sees Job as a man of faith. just want to remind you of one passage that we looked at earlier in our study of Job, Ezekiel 14.14, and God, through the prophet, is saying that judgment is coming on the country. He wants to make the point that I don't care who asks for deliverance. Judgment is coming. And this is what is written. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. In other words, I'm going to judge this country. And you know what? If these three men... And God could have picked any three men to exemplify faith. He picks Noah, Daniel, and Job. Job is a man of faith. He is struggling, but he is believing. And we should recognize him as believing. I fear, and particularly the last two weeks as I've prepared for the sermons, I think of different people I know who have left the Christian faith. And I think they have left because they have misunderstood the nature of faith. They have failed to see it as process, and maybe it hasn't been explained to them that way. They see it as black and white, either I've got faith or I don't. And they fail to recognize that faith doesn't mean grinning and bearing. That faith can, in fact, be crying out to God and saying, why is this happening? Or in Paul's case, saying, take this away from me. And by asking God to take it away, Paul is saying, I don't think this should be here. But it isn't rebellion, it is faith. And I think some people have become so discouraged in their Christian faith because they have viewed faith as a commodity, as something that you either have or you don't have, and something that just means keeping a stiff upper lip. And they say, I don't have that. Therefore, I must not have faith. And I would say, no, that's not true. That is simply not the case. We are in process. We are on a journey. And sometimes the journey is easy, and other times it is difficult. And in the midst of difficulties, we have the right, by faith, to say to God, please change my situation. Which is the same thing as saying, why have you put me here? It is not rebellion. We come to chapter 24. And Job's complaint focuses on three oppressive situations. First of all, the abuse of the weak in society. Secondly, the oppressive working conditions of the poor. And thirdly, unpunished criminal acts. And I think Job has a dual point here. First of all, even though he's not addressing his friends, they are listening. They have made this, this situation. You do good, you get rewarded, you do bad, and you're punished. And Job sort of throws this up and says, listen, there are people who are good people who are suffering. But I think Job also wants God to respond and to change his situation. Verse number one is the key to the passage. Why is there no judgment? He begins by asking two questions, which implies that the wicked take advantage of the fact that judgment has not come. But the righteous endure as they are waiting for that judgment to come and for them to be rewarded. The bottom line is God's justice, his administration of justice, sometimes seems highly inconsistent. It is partial. It is sporadic. We worship God today as a God of justice. And yet Job would tell us, sometimes God doesn't judge the wicked. Sometimes the righteous are treated badly. He gives the examples. First, the abuse of the weak. Since the day of judgment has not yet come, the weak members of the community are violated. And this happens flagrantly. And he, he lists various crimes that are committed against them. First of all, boundary stones are moved. This is a big issue in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, for us, I don't think, you know, we live in a time of surveyors and, and there are maps downtown that tell you where all the boundary lines are. In the olden days, they didn't have that. Okay. What they would do to mark property lines was they would put a stone. And they they put the stone and it was to stay there. Well, some unscrupulous person, since there is no record, no one's written it down on paper, there are no diagrams, could very easily get that stone and move it over and make his property larger. And in human eyes, that person might get away with it. But God knows where the boundaries are. God is the one who has put us where we are. He gives us the land as something to be cared for. He is the one who assigns our portion. And to move the line is to say, God doesn't know what's going on. The book of Proverbs speaks about this. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. For their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. So boundary stones are moved. Flocks are stolen. The orphan's donkey is taken away. The ox that a widow has, it's all she has, is taken as collateral for a loan. Then we see in verse number nine that children are taken in payment for debt. Instead of having compassion, the people foreclose. The people have loaned them money and take their children and sell them into slavery to pay off a debt. And the weakened society can't fight back against us. And then we see in verses 5 through 8 and verses 10 and 11, uh, oppression and the workers. It may seem to be splitting hairs here, but I don't think that Job is talking about the poor. He's talking about what we now know in our society as the working poor. Those who work, but barely make enough to survive. Those who must forage for food, who must glean in the vineyards of those who have money, the wicked. Those who work but are not allowed to taste what they work with. They gather up grain, but they can't take any grain. They crush the olives, but they can't have any of the olive oil. They crush the grapes to make wine, but they're not allowed to drink the wine. They don't have clothing to protect them at night. They don't even have a place to live. They have to find shelter under rocks. And why is it this way? Because the wicked are not afraid of judgment. God has delayed his judgment. And the wicked are getting away with murder. And in fact, that's what we find in verses 12 through 17. The criminals who go unpunished. God charges no one in spite of the groans of the dying and the cries of the wounded. There are those, Job says, who rebel against the light. That is, whatever it is they do, they do under the cover of darkness. And three categories murderers, adulterers, and thieves. That is, that murderers kill the poor and needy. They do it at night. The adulterer sneaks out, thinking no one will see him. And it is at nighttime that you're most likely to have your house broken into because thieves don't want to be seen. At nighttime, they go out and do the things they want to do. Verse number 17, I think, is interesting because Job says, For them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. They feel much more comfortable in the dark than they do in the light. I think there's more at work here. I don't know that Job intends it, but I think he may. That he's not simply saying that they do stuff when it is physically dark, that is at nighttime. But they are sinning against the light of conscience. Because human beings, we are made in the image of God. God has given us conscience. We know certain things are wrong. Whether a person has ever heard the Ten Commandments, has ever read the Bible, has ever heard about the true and living God, people know that there's some things that you do that are right, certain things that you do that are wrong. And if the question comes up, well, how, would, how do people have conscience? Why, how does this work? Well, I think the fact that they do it at night, if what you're doing isn't wrong, if it doesn't violate conscience, then why are you doing it when no one else can see? They are, in fact, acting against God's law. They are acting against the best interests of society. Murder is a sin against human life and the sanctity of human life. Adultery is a sin against the sanctity of marriage. Theft is a sin against the sanctity of private property. Each of these are rights that God has given to human beings. We have the right to live our lives. We have the right to to be a part of a family. We have the right to own certain things. These are fundamental to the survival of society. But certain people go against the light of their conscience. They go against what they know to be right, and they do these terrible things. Jesus said to Nicodemus in that famous chapter in John chapter 3, Light has come into the world. But men loved the darkness rather, or instead of light, because their deeds were evil. We think that in the darkness no one sees what we do. And then we come to this troublesome section, verses 18 through 25, in which Job explains rather simply God will deal with them. that they seem to be so powerful but in reality they are like foam on the sea that they are there one instant and then they are gone the next that in the same way that snow is melted when the heat when the sun comes out so their lives will be taken away here we think yeah this this is a man of faith here's a man who believes here's a man who is confident that God will make things right, that God will deal with the wicked. But I don't know about the other part. I don't know about the first 17 verses. That doesn't sound like a man of faith to me. And as I explained at the beginning, no, he is a man of faith. He is on a journey. He is on a pilgrimage. And there are times in the journey where things seem so clear to us that we can with confidence say, God will deal with those who do wrong. And then there are other times in our lives when we say, why isn't God doing something? Why is this person allowed to get away with the things that they have done? Why is it that someone is able to take a widow's ox in collateral, clearly against the law? and get away with it? Why is it that people are able to steal children and sell them into slavery? I think these are legitimate questions. By the way, Job does not give us the answer. And when we get to the part when God speaks, God doesn't give us the answer either. But they are legitimate questions and we can ask them and still be people of faith we can still ask questions and be people of faith. I went through a period of time in my life when I was discouraged from, by others from asking questions. That the PR that was put on me was a person who asks questions is not a person of faith. A person who asks questions is doubting. They are questioning God, and that is wrong, and therefore don't do it. If you take that attitude, then Job is in serious trouble in your book, because he is questioning, he wants to know why. I think for me the key is to understand that I am a human being, and I am not perfect. So I can't ever in this life have perfect faith. That's that's the, the starting point. And then to understand that faith is a process of believing. And that in believing, I can ask questions. I can say to God, I do not understand what you're doing here. And in fact, by what I can see, what you are doing here is wrong. What are you doing God allows that. He wants us to ask questions. You know, my students uh, are hesitant to ask questions, and every teacher tells your student, their students, you only learn by asking questions. And yet we don't want to seem to give ourselves that privilege with God. It is by asking questions of God that we learn of God. It's not wrong to ask. It can be. And, and the line always moves because sometimes we start out very earnestly saying, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't think you're doing the right thing. And I think there we're still okay. But then we may cross the line and then begin to shake our hands at God, our fists at God and say, you need to change. You need to change this situation. Job is a man of faith. He is struggling. And thank God for his struggles because it is in the midst of struggle that he learns. It's never nice to struggle. It's never pleasant. But in the end, the results, I think, are worth it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which the word faith has been much abused. and The concept of faith I think has been turned inside out. We are consumers, we want a product. And faith is often presented by the church as the product you have for us. We are impatient, we are an impatient people. Technology has made process unnecessary in many areas. And so we don't want to have to go through the process of believing the process of growing into maturity. We just want to be there and to have faith. And unfortunately, many have been taught that to have faith means that we cannot ask why. I thank you for the example that we find in Job. A man who struggles back and forth, one minute confident, the next complaining the next affirming the fact of your judgment. May we not be discouraged in our journey of faith as has happened to so many. May we understand what it means to be your child, what it means to grow. And with your grace and your love, may you embrace us as we walk through this life. again that we remember our country and other countries that are at war for the men and women who are fighting for the civilians of Iraq. You are the God of all peace and we pray that peace would come quickly. Now I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? Praise God from...